This morning we are going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 14 and from verse 36 to the end of the chapter. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and take spoil among them until the morning light, and let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. So the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Wilt thou give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him on that day. And Saul said, Draw near here, you all you chiefs of the people, and investigate, and see how this sin has happened today. For as the Lord lives who delivers Israel, though it is in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But not one of, the, of all the people answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said to the Lord, the God of Israel, Give a perfect lot. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. And Saul said, Cast lots between me and Jonathan my son. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. So Jonathan told him and said, I indeed tasted a little honey with the, with the end of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I must die. And Saul said, May God do this to me and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. But the people said to Saul, Must Jonathan die, who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. Now when Saul had taken the kingdom over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, the sons of Ammon, Edom, the kings of Zobah, and the Philistines, and wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment. And he acted valiantly and defeated the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan and Ishvi and, and Malshua, and the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Mirab, and the name of the younger, Michal. And the name of Saul's wife, was Ahinoam, and the daughter of Ahimaaz. And the name of the captain of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. And Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of uh, Abiel. Now the war against the Philistines was severe all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any mighty man or any valiant man, he attached him to his staff. Thank you, Jim. He got the tough one. He got all the names. Um, okay, so uh, I want to invite our children to Children's Church. I think they're already gone. Nope, there we go. And uh, let's open in a word of prayer, and then we'll turn to God's word. Um, Lord, uh, Kyle's was right. This, this 
song that we sang at the end, we, we will get to sing in eternity, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Lord, as we repeat that refrain, it will never grow old. It won't become something common in second place because Lord, we will see unfolding increasingly more and more your holiness, your perfections, your beauty as we live with you in eternity as you've promised. Um, I was listening to the song, um, is, he, is He Worthy, this morning on the way to church, and they said, does our God intend to live among us? He does. And Lord, we long for that day. Come, Lord Jesus. Um, Lord, in the meantime, we're here uh, on this fallen, yet-to-be-redeemed earth, in fallen, yet-to-be-redeemed bodies with new spirits and hearts and minds, living amongst people who are yet to be redeemed or judged. And so, Lord, would you give us faith and patience to follow after you in this in this difficult place and lord um, you have defeated death but it has not been removed yet and so lord we want to grieve with our brother dan fordham as his mother has passed away this week um, lord we're grateful that she was home with her family that um, it was a peaceful passing we just pray your blessing on the fordham clan the whole extended family uh, that uh, those who know you would be comforted uh, in trusting in you, and, and would you be with Dan and, and uh, Desiree as they work through all the implications of what the death of his mother means. Have mercy on them, we pray. Father, we also want to pray for Ashley Knight, who had a, an emergency appendectomy. Uh, Father, this is an act of grace that we have the ability to address something like that. Um, millennia ago that would have been a death sentence we wouldn't have been able to open her up and, and remove the burst appendix or the the uh, about to burst appendix but lord you've given us these medical abilities and we're thankful for that thank you for preserving our sister we pray for healing for her uh, for patience uh, um, as she's healing as she's recovering and uh, thank you that you've had mercy on on her that way that you uh, delivered her from that uh, that problem father we want to pray again for the williams and for uh, the new uh, child in their life. Thank you for the safe delivery, and we just can pray to continue to bless that family and strengthen them. And uh, Lord, as we turn now to your word, uh, Holy Spirit, we need you. We desperately need you. We won't understand what you're saying unless you show us. So Holy Spirit, would you come in and shine on your word this morning and, and make it alive and active in our hearts and minds. It's not a, a, a natural, mechanical thing that happens. Lord, it is a spiritual reality, and only you can do that. So come and be with us, we ask. Um, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the Vietnam War, in case you didn't know, was a hot mess on a number of ways, a number of reasons. Uh, why we got into it, how we got out of it, how it was fought, it was just a wreck beginning to end. Uh, but there's one story from it that I think kind of stands out. It was 55 years ago Thursday, so um, not that long ago. Well, for some of you, that's long ago. For me, it's not that long ago. 55 years ago on Thursday, Warrant Officer Hugh Thompson Jr. was flying a Helicon recon mission on attack on a village that was Viet Cong controlled in Vietnam. And as he flew in, he saw um, a woman, a woman's, uh, woman, wounded civilian laying on the ground um, she was still alive, but she was, she was down, and so he flew over and dropped a green flare on top uh, where she was at. That means medical attention is needed. Um, Thompson explained what he saw. He said, we were hovering six feet off the ground, not more than 20 feet away, when Captain Medina of Charlie Company came over, kicked her, stepped back, and finished her off. 
He said later, he did it right in front of us. When we saw Medina do that, it clicked. It was our guys doing the killing. This, this little Viet Cong controlled village, there was an army unit there massacring civilians. So Thompson saw the same thing happening not too far away in an irrigation ditch. And so he landed and he, he attempted to stop the murder. He was yelling, these are human beings, he yelled at the lieutenant, unarmed civilians. He's saying, you can't do this. The lieutenant ordered him back into his helicopter. So Thompson called for other aerial units to come in and help, and they were silent. Nobody responded. His crew spotted 2nd Platoon Charlie Company closing in on a group of women, children, and old men. And so Thompson flew his helicopter, landed between them, uh, landed between the, the soldiers and the civilians. He jumped out of the chopper, drew his sidearm, and he put a crewman on the machine gun and issued him an order he'll never forget. He said, if 2nd Platoon fired on him or the civilians, he said, open fire on him, blow him away. Lieutenant Brooks, the commander of the platoon, demanded that Thompson and his crew move. Thompson refused. It was a 20-minute standoff as the chopper crew stared down 2nd Platoon, and Thompson begged for air cover to come in and support them. Eventually, two choppers came in and landed. They rushed the civilians on board and got them out. So low on fuel, Thompson's crew took off and headed for a landing zone. But as they were passing over that irrigation ditch that they saw at the beginning, one of the crew members saw movement, and so Thompson landed. He hopped on the machine gun, covered his crew as they ran in and rescued a three-year-old boy from a massacre ditch. After the incident, Thompson's report held nothing back. He explained everything that had happened in the village. The village was called Mylay, and it became an uncomfortable incident for the uh, for the U.S. Army. They eventually quietly court-martialed one of the people that was involved, but tried to cover the whole thing up. Now, Warren Officer Thompson was a man of conscience. He was a good man, so when he came back, he kept trying to bring up the problem. He kept trying to address the issue, but he felt constrained to keep it within the Army. He didn't want to go outside of that. He thought that the, the chain of command should be able to address it. But nothing ever happened. In uh, November of 1969, about four or five years later, News broke. The news got a hold of it, and Thompson came forward. He refused to shut up, despite pressure from the press, from the military, even from Congress. People were threatening him. They were leaving dead animals on his doorstop. He refused to stop testifying. Eventually, they court-martialed, like I said, one of the, the people in, in charge of that, and then it kind of hoped it would just go away. Well, in 1988, a number of years later, a British filmmaker made a documentary about Miley. And in it, he interviewed Thompson, and Thompson didn't hold anything back. He told it as it was. The following year after the documentary came out, there was a letter-writing campaign to encourage the government to honor Thompson for his hero heroism at My Life. Ten years later, this military moves really fast, ten years later, they awarded him the Soldier's Medal. That's the highest honor that can be given non-combat in, in the U.S. Army. Um, Thompson demanded that his crew members that were on him, one of whom had since passed away, be given the, the uh, award as well or he wouldn't take it. And so they were all three recognized and given, given this honor. This is a tough story, not something that we should be proud of. Uh, Thompson was right. He said, we're no better than the Nazis. And he tried to put an end to something that was unjust. He's an example, in my opinion, of a good soldier. A good soldier will follow orders but a good soldier will also know when to say, no, sir, I'm not doing that. So as this lieutenant, a warrant officer's below rank 
of a, a, a lieutenant. So as a lieutenant and a captain told him, get in your chopper and leave, and he refused. When he landed and faced down second platoon, face to face with only a, a, a sidearm in his hand, he was disobeying a direct order. Technically, he should have been court-martialed. They wouldn't court-martial him because what he did was right. In, in the military, you have an obligation to follow any legal order issued to you. That means if you're issued an illegal order, it's your obligation to say no, to, to face the, the consequences of it, but to say absolutely not, I will not obey. That's an illegal order. What we're going to see today as we finish out chapter 14 is we're going to learn how and when to say no. It's a difficult situation. So where we're at in the story, chapter 14 really was a story in three acts. Act one was uh, Jonathan saying, the Lord can deliver by many or by few, and he charged into the Philistine camp and put him to flight. Then Saul, who was you know, slumbering under a tree, decided that he was going to get involved in the battle and avenge his name because he didn't do anything up until that point. Act two was when they put the enemy to flight and they're, they're chasing after them. They go through the forest and here is honey dripping from the trees. But Saul made a foolish vow and said, anybody who eats before I'm vanquished on my enemies, let them be cursed. And so they couldn't take it. And eventually when they finally did catch the Philistines and wipe them out, they fell on the spoils and ate meat with blood in it. And so Saul had to put an end to that. So we're in Act 3. Act 3 is going to kind of bring those other acts together and draw them into a conclusion. Um, so we just had to, I wanted to make sure we were back in the story, understand where we're at. So Saul says, let's go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until morning. Let's not leave a man of them. So in other words, he's ready to go. Now he's going to engage the fight because his son Jonathan's already defeated them. So he wants to chase them all night and wipe them out. They've, they've finally got to eat the meat. They drained the blood out of the meat. They ate the cattle. They're, his army is, is recharged and ready to go. And the people say, do whatever seems good in your sight, or do whatever seems good to you. It, it doesn't sound like an enthusiastic, yes, sir, let's go get them. It's whatever you say. It's kind of a, a, almost a resignation. So he's ready to go. He's ready to rock and roll. Let's go chase the bad guys. When the priest comes up to him and says, well, let's draw near to God. Let's ask first. So Saul inquired of God, shall I go down to the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? But he did not answer him that day. So here's the situation. The king, who God has rejected, is about to go engage an enemy without asking God. And so a priest who God has rejected. Remember at the beginning of the chapter, they defined who this was. Phinehas, this is the son of Ichabod, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, who God had rejected from being a priest over Israel. This is the man. He steps forward. And so this rejected king hears from a rejected priest, let's ask God what to do. And so when they turn and they ask God, should we go? And he doesn't answer, what is the logical assumption here? Well, of course he's not going to answer us. We've been rejected. Nope. Saul's answer is, it must be the people. It can't be me. It's got to be you. And so what he does is he calls the leaders together, and he says, I need to know what sin has arisen today. And then he makes another foolish vow. As, as the Lord lives who saved Israel, if it's, even if it's my son Jonathan, he shall surely die. Now, some of the commentators are saying he knew it was Jonathan's fault, and that's why he called him out. I don't think that's the case. I think I think this is hyperbole. I think that, that, that Saul is saying, even if it's my son, 
you know, it can get that high. Of course it's not. It's you people. But even if it is my son, I'm going to kill him. That, that's how he's trying to come across as serious about this sin. And so what they do is they draw lots. Um, Jim's translation, the New American Standards, is more literal to what the Hebrew says, which is give the good lot. Or uh, literally it says shofumim. So the, the lots that were in the priest ephod, the, the vest that he wore, was called urim and thumim. And it was a way of casting lots to determine how God would tell them what to do. Um, so in the, uh, the other versions, other translations of the Bible, they get it from the Septuagint and the Syriatic version. It says, if it's the people, give Urim, and if it's uh, Jonathan, or, or if it's the house of Saul, then give Thummim. In other words, however that technically works, Lord, we're going to cast lots and you choose. And so the lot falls to Saul. And so who's on that side is Saul and Jonathan. So they cast lots again, and the, the lot falls to Jonathan. Um, does that sound familiar? Remember we talked about casting lots earlier? This is how God appointed Saul to be king. Originally, he had Samuel anoint him in private. And then later, in a more public ceremony, they cast lots and the lot fell to Saul. So this is their way of making a decision. He's casting lots again, and this time the lot falls to Jonathan. And so he says to his son, what have you done? Does that sound familiar? That's exactly what Samuel said to him. In the previous chapter, Saul is waiting to engage the Philistines. His army's disappearing, and so he offers the sacrifice because Samuel's late. And Samuel walks into the camp and goes, what have you done? That is never a good question in the Bible. It is always an accusation that he's done something wrong. And now Samuel or Saul is turning it back on his son. What have you done? And so Saul, uh, Jonathan's answer is, um, I dipped my the tip of my spear into some honey, and I just tasted it. So just the, the way he phrases it, it's not like he fell on the honey and just gulped it down. He took a little sample of it. So is his sin horrible? And, and the answer is, you're dead. I'm going to kill you. But Jonathan is a man of integrity, a man of honor, and he says, if that's the decision, then, then I'm, well, I'm, I'm here to die. I'm going to be killed. He, he's going to stand up, and he's just going to take it. So the people then intercede. The people say, shall Jonathan surely die? He's worked a great self. Look at what he's done. You were sleeping under a pomegranate tree, and he charged in, and he defeated our enemies. Twice. Shall he really die? Is this the man you want to kill? Far be it. As the Lord lives, there shall not be one hair of his that falls to the ground, uh, because God has worked for him this day. And so what it says is the people ransomed Jonathan. I forget exactly how, um, how um, Jim's translation said it, but the word really is ransomed. Now the question there is, how did they ransom him? You, that word technically is used to mean somebody is substituted for. So in the law, the firstborn are said to belong to God because he killed the firstborn of Egypt, he skipped the firstborn of Israel, and, and got them out of Egypt. And God says, in order to keep the firstborn, you must redeem them. So if an animal is a firstborn from, an, uh, from a, a cow or a calf or something, or a cow or a ewe um, or something, you have to snap its neck. If you want to keep it, then you have to substitute something for it. You have to redeem it. And for the people, the people are supposed to give their firstborn to the Lord, but God said, I will take Levi, the tribe of Levi, instead. That's that sense of redemption. So how did the people redeem 
Jonathan here. It could be that they offered an animal in his place. It could be they maybe paid money in his place. I think, because there's no mention of it, I think the simplest answer is they just prevailed upon him. And they pled, and they, they pled with um, Saul and said, no, let him live. Let him, let him be okay. And so Saul relents. Saul says, okay, that's it. And then the author wraps things up really quick in verse 46. Then Saul went up for pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. So in other words, Saul went, okay, we're done, and turned around and went home, and the Philistines went home, and that's it. Drop the screen, it's over. There's a little epilogue at the end, though. There's kind of a wrapping up of the story because chapter 15 is going to be something different. It says, when Saul took his kingship over Israel, he fought all his enemies on every side, and he did valiantly, and he struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. That is just, I think it's intended to stand out as a stark difference from what he's done so far. This is what he was supposed to do. This is what they wanted a king to do, to deliver us from our enemies. And, and so it says that God did that. He got, delivered the enemies through Saul all the days of his life. But it was hard. They had to continue to fight. And then it lists his, his sons and his daughters. And the son of his commander's name was Abner, son of Ner, Saul's uncle. I just got to say this because I find this hilarious. Abner, the son of Ner. Do you know what the ab means at the beginning? My father. So what this says is, my father is Ner, the son of Ner. I get the impression Ner was kind of taken with himself. I want you to remember who I am, so you're the son of Ner. That's who you are. It just cracks me up. But this is the structure of his army. So Abner is, is the commander of his army and his, uh, his cousin. And then the, the chapter ends, there was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw a, a strong man or a valiant man, he attached him to himself. So now we're beginning to see he's building his kingdom out. He's got a commander of his army, and now he's, anytime he sees somebody valiant in battle, you're joining me. You're one of the commanders in my army. So that's, that's the story. Um, one of the questions that we have when we study Old Testament narrative, what I've been harping on since we've been doing this is, how do we interpret this? What do we do with the story? Um, what we get is a, a recounting of the events that happened. But even in the historical books like this, this is inspired scripture. God inspired this take on this event for a purpose. This is not just a historical recounting like you would look in a, in a history book and do it. This is God's take on history. This is God explaining history from his perspective. And so I think it's a legitimate question for us to ask, so how, what do we do with this? How do we understand it? Because it should go beyond just, oh, that's an interesting story. It, it has more meaning to us. These were written for our benefit, upon whom the end of the ages have come. So let's go and, and understand this again. Now, the other thing I've been harping on through all of chapter 14 is where do we fit into the story? Where do we identify in the story? We're not Saul. Anybody want to be Saul? No, nobody wants to be Saul. How about Jonathan? Oh, yeah, I want to be Jonathan. Sorry, you're not. You're Israel. You're the people. So Israel is God's chosen people. We are the church. We are God's chosen people. We were chosen in Christ from the foundation of the world. So the way I understand that to fit together is when Jesus came, there were people who rejected him, who said, we don't want him. Our king is Caesar. God rejected them. There was a core that was still faithful. This is Israel. This is the Israel of God. And what happened after Jesus came and, and Pentecost took place is now the Gentiles are being brought in to that group. And so today the church is Jew and Gentile, 
barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, male and female, joined together. This is the people of God. So we can really look back and identify with Israel at this point. We are them. They am us. And so we, we need to look at this story not from the perspective of Saul or Jonathan, but from the perspective of the people for a moment. So what are the people doing? The people have suffered under Saul. They have, they have got the king that they demanded. But you have to look at it in perspective. Saul was the king they demanded. Great, here's your king. He's been rejected by God. So they're looking at this king going, this is the king that God publicly rejected. They're gonna do, he's going to reject him again in the next chapter. And then we'll finally get to David in chapter 16. But he is rejected but not replaced yet. So the people are kind of in, in limbo at this point going, well, we still have Saul, but God said he's not the king. He's, he's not the king after his own heart, and so we're kind of waiting. That's the perspective of the people. The king that God's rejected makes good decisions. He makes bad decisions. He does well. He does foolish. He's good and he's bad. He's, he's this, that, and the other. The people are not notice. They didn't rise up and go off with his head. You know, let's have a rebellion, throw Saul out. They're still submitting to Saul at this point. However, since he is the king that God's rejected, they also feel some liberty to say, but wait a minute. You're going to execute Jonathan? He's, he's a tremendous asset. And so instead of just simply going along and saying, well, do whatever you feel is right, this time they say, no way. Don't do it. This, you've gone too far. You made us swear, you put us under a curse that we couldn't eat, and then God provided this hungry honey, and we, you know, we obeyed, and we didn't eat, and it cost us. You are not going to kill Jonathan. And so Saul relents. So how does that affect us? Where do we stand in that position? Well, imagine, remember where we're at right now. Jesus has come. He was crucified. He rose again. He taught his disciples for 40 days, and then he ascended into heaven where he is seated at the right hand of God. He, he, is, he is ruling from heaven. So what we're left with here is the civilian governments and, and church leaders and uh, cultural authorities and this kind of stuff. They are currently in charge, though God has rejected them. He simply hasn't replaced them yet. And so we're kind of like Israel at this point, is we have the government over us which we can look at and go, you're not here forever. This is, this is not the ultimate state. This is not the ultimate. You're actually not even in charge. And, and this is because of verses like John chapter 19. Jesus is in his trial, and Pilate says, uh, Pilate's questioning, so are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus just won't answer. So Pilate says to him, you'll not speak to me? Don't you know I have the authority to release you, and I have the authority to crucify you? This blew Pilate's mind that Jesus wouldn't even make an answer. And Jesus answered him, you'd have no authority over me at all unless it was given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered to, me you, to you has greater sin. He looked at Pilate and said, the only reason you're in charge is because my father put you there. So yes, I'll submit to your authority, but because it's from God. This is... Jesus' teaching, but it's also the apostles' teaching. So Romans chapter 13 begins with this admonition, let every person be subject to governing authorities. For there is no authority except for, from God, and those who exist 
have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Paul wrote this when Nero was Caesar. Nero would put Christians in tar and light them on fire to light his garden. And Paul says, submit to him. Honor, pay respect to him. Peter says the same thing. It's about the same time period. Be subject to the Lord's, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So here we are, we're citizens of the kingdom of God, the, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. That's our true citizenship. That's the, our, our, our place that we belong to. Yet we're in this world living under these foreign governments who are rejected by God and yet not replaced. And so we're in a similar position to what Israel is facing with Saul and Jonathan. And so what's our responsibility to do this? Well, we have to obey. When the government tells us to do things, we have to obey. We have to honor the government. But just like Saul, it's possible for the government to overstep its bounds. Saul said, hey, Samuel's not here. I'm going to offer the sacrifice. He overstepped his bounds, and he was rejected for it. He, he tells the, the nation, you can't eat until I'm avenged. Free to say that. It was really a stupid idea. And so these are the kind of things where the people are looking and going, do we obey? Do we not obey? How do we process this? And that's what we're at today as Christians as we look and we go, do I obey? Do I not obey? How do I process this? When do I, when do I do what the government tells me to do and when do I not? Our attitude has got to be, and I think what's liberating in this is to look at that government and say, you're not here forever. You think that you're the ultimate power, but you're not because Jesus is ruling from the throne. And the only reason that you're in office is because Jesus put you there. This was a lesson that was hard learned. It goes back further than Jesus. Uh, um, Daniel chapter four, Nebuchadnezzar, when he's turned into an animal and wanders out in the, in the wilderness for however long that was, when he comes to his senses again, the lesson he learned is God is active in the affairs of man and will put whoever he pleases in charge. And that includes me what Nebuchadnezzar said. He was humbled. He recognized that it was God that was in charge. So even if it's Ronald Reagan or Hillary Clinton or George W. Bush or Barack Obama or President Trump or President Biden who's in charge, who's in the White House, we have a responsibility to them, not because of who they are as an individual, but because God has put them there. God's the one who did that. And so we have to be respectful. We have to respond to them in humility and say what they're saying, you know, up until a certain point, we're going to obey what they tell us. Now, it's really complicated for us because we get to vote for our king. We, we have a voice in this. And so when our king oversteps their boundaries, we have to say something. That's what Israel did. Israel said, you can't kill Jonathan. This, is, this has gone just too far. He is a righteous man, and you're going to unrighteously kill him. You can't do that. So when our government steps over bounds, we have even a bigger voice because it's a democracy. So we have a bigger voice and we can tell our government, this is stupid, don't do this. So for example, years ago, there was video evidence that Planned Parenthood was selling aborted fetus parts. This is, not only is it disgusting, not only is it vile ethically, it's illegal, you can't do that. And so this, this investigative team caught them on tape 
bartering for prices for uh, fetus parts. So what I did is I wrote to my representatives, Senator McCarthy, or, uh, Representative McCarthy, who's on the right, he's a, Demo a Republican, and Dianne Feinstein, who's on the left. It's a difficult situation to be in. I wrote to both of them and I said, I don't care what your stance on abortion is, this is illegal. I expect, I anticipate you to investigate this. I demand you investigate it. What I got was from, Pres uh, from Senator McCarthy, or uh, Representative McCarthy, I got a nice letter saying, hey, yeah, I'm on board. I, I totally agree with you. We, this, this won't stand. We need to investigate it. Dianne Feinstein, if you say the word abortion around her, she freaks out. She is owned lock, stock, and barrel by Planned Parenthood. I got a letter back from her saying, well, you know, this, is got, this has got to be investigated. We've got to figure out what's going on. This is, and she defended Planned Parenthood. McCarthy didn't do anything. So I responded to what I saw as an ethical, moral, you can't do this, and demanded that my, our leadership respond. And McCarthy said, yes, hail and amen, and did nothing. And Feinstein did what Feinstein was going to do. So it puts us in this awkward situation. We are the voice of God here. We are the people of God. We're a member of Christ's kingdom. And so we live apart. We live differently. This isn't, this isn't our home. This isn't the, the, the government that we're going to be under forever. We have been given a prophetic voice. And so within the church, there's debate. What should the church do when, it, when we see injustice in the world? Some folks say, just preach the gospel. Amen. Always preach the gospel. It, it would be wonderful if I could get stuck in an elevator with Feinstein and McCarthy and have a chance to, to talk with them and, and share the gospel. That would be awesome. But we also have a responsibility to stand up and say, not only do we have to preach the gospel and say, Jesus Christ has redeemed sinners of which you are one, of which I am one. He, he's delivered us. He's set us free from sin and death and hell, and he's, he's liberated us. And, and you need to put your faith and your hope in him. That's your only hope in the future. Amen. Do that. But at the same time, we also have an obligation to stand up when we see injustice and say, this isn't right. We have the word of God. We have the spirit of God. We can look at these things and say, that's not right. And so there comes a time when we have to look our government in the face and say, no, don't do that. But what you look at here when you see how Israel did it is they did it with respect. To a rejected king, they still did it with respect. Now, in our day, this is really hard to do. Because I, I just read an article, I think it was two weeks ago, about why is social media successful? Because it inf it's all negative. It inflames negative emotions. It, it, it inflames outrage and anger and fear. And social media did that. Guess who else does that? The rest of the media. The talking heads on MSNBC and Fox and all these, they know what's going to get the people to watch, which is scare tactics and, and outrage and, and how can we make you angry and stuff. So for you as a Christian, we're standing there watching these talking heads bring up the worst possible stories and the worst possible interpretation, and it inflames anger in us. There's an outrage, and there should be, but that's not how we're called to react to it. We're, we're called to step back and say, be angry but don't sin. So how do you do that? How do we do this in this world? How do we behave like this? Well, I think the key is we have to go back to the beginning of this story. What did, what did Jonathan do? I, I think Jonathan, in this instance, is kind of a picture of who Jesus is. He's not always, not all the way through the story. When David shows up, David's going to replace him in that. But right now, in the contrast between Saul and Jonathan, I think he's a picture of that. 
What he did is he, in, he is the one who engaged our enemies. He fought the battle we couldn't fight. We were stuck in the holes. We were stuck in the cisterns. We were stuck in the tombs. He went out and he routed the enemy. Once he put the enemy to flight, then he, had, he released us from that. He set us free from sin and death and hell. And now we engage the battle. What Jesus said was, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Does that sound like a ruler to you? Does that sound like a king? All authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. All of it. Great. What's he telling us to do? Let's, we need to arm up. We need to go start the revolution now. We're going to you know, get the... No, he says, no. Here's what I want you to do. Because I am now king, go. Make disciples of all nations. Go find them. Go bring them in. Go make disciples. I have won the battle. I want you to go do the cleanup work now. Go chase them down. Go make disciples. And lo, I'm with you to the end of the age. So that's the constant picture from the New Testament. It is our battle is not with flesh and blood. Our battle is not put on the armor and engage the, the fight. The, our battle is not go on social media and flame anybody who says something you don't agree with. Our battle is make disciples. And that's the danger with the situation we're in now is we can think, I'm angry, I'm inflamed, I'm outraged by what they said or what they did or what they believe, and I'm going to let them have it. Is that making a disciple? You feel better. I feel better. I, I was triggered a couple of times this week reading a couple of things. I finally had to go, I need to back off. Twitter is really bad for my soul. And, and hang out and read some um, military aviation tweets instead, and that made me feel better about myself. That's a real danger. And so this picture here is we have a government, whether you like them or loathe them, they're in charge. Doesn't matter who's in the White House. Regardless, even if you think they're the greatest or the worst, you have to respect them until they cross the line and do something, ask us to do something that's unjust. And, and it's, it's difficult, but that's where we're at in the battle. And here's the good news, is that epilogue at the end of the chapter, you would look at Saul and go, Jonathan's the man of faith. Jonathan's the man who said God can deliver by many or by few. Let's go charge. He, he scrambled up a cliff and then wiped out a bunch of Philistines. That's a man of faith. Saul is the guy who is sitting under a pomegranate tree, taking his time. Now let's avenge everybody. I'm, I need my name avenged, that kind of stuff. He's not the man of faith. But he's in charge. He's still the king that God has anointed, God has put in charge, God has rejected, but God hasn't replaced. And so that the chapter ends, he, went, he acted valiantly. He defeated all the enemies. He subdued the enemies. He fought hard against the Philistines the whole time. So the good news is, when you despise that person in the White House or in, the, in Sacramento or wherever, God can still use them. That's Nebuchadnezzar's story is, he was completely so soaked in his own glory that he was just acting wild and God humbled him. God still used him to bring about a purpose. Cyrus, a future king of Babylon, God used him to bring Israel back. So these guys, they think they're in charge. They think that they've got all the power, they can do whatever they want, and yet they're still under God's authority. And so with that knowledge, and we're standing back, we've got this, this slight distance from all of that, we go, that's not my kingdom. It's where I live, it's where I work, it's, it's the rule I'm under right now. That's not my kingdom. 
I, I have a voice in it, and I'm going to speak prophetically what God has told me to say, what God has, has shown in our hearts. He's written the law in our hearts. Let's speak into that prophetically, but don't put our hope in that. Let's look to Saul and go, whatever you, do whatever you think is right until he does something that's not right. But we do it with respect and with honor. We don't, we don't execute Saul on the spot. We're waiting. There's a day coming when Jesus is going to return. When the dictator, the benevolent dictator, the emperor of the world will come and set foot on the earth and he will subdue all of those kingdoms. And he will rule rightly and justly. You know how when you, you are evaluating, like, a, who am I going to vote for? this? You, you get those voting packets and, and there's a judge that you've never heard of and know nothing about. And you go, how am I supposed to vote for these people? When you're looking through there and you're trying to figure out who you're going to vote for and you're doing some research and saying, what, what does this person stand in? And none of them are perfect. You know that feeling in your heart, this, this could be better? This could line up better? You know what that feeling is? Come, Lord Jesus. I don't want these candidates. I don't like any of them. Lord, would you come and rule over us? That's that feeling. So in the meantime, we're looking at the civil government, the 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 cultural leaders, church leaders, and we're going, they're just not perfect. They're just, if they would just do this, that's a call in your heart for Jesus to come and rule over us. So that's where we're at in the story is Saul is rejected but not removed. We're waiting and we're anticipating, Lord, come. And the question is, I'm going to bring it up again because it's still lingering. Why not Jonathan? Why? He's a good guy. Even the people are like, you can't kill him. Look at how he's done. Why not Jonathan? We're going to leave that hang until Jonathan answers that himself. And the answer is going to be because it's God's person. God will put the right person in charge. And that's what we're waiting for. That's what we're anticipating. So that's the end of, of Saul's story, pretty much. What comes next is uh, God is going to reject Saul and, and call him out. And then in chapter 16, little David shows up on the scene. And that's when I think all of us will breathe a sigh of relief, finally. But it ain't over yet. It, the, the fight still goes on. So with that, let's, let's close in prayer. And then, um, uh, uh, Lord, uh, we do ask, would you please come? Uh, Jesus, if right now the, the skies parted and you descended with the, the shout of the archangel with a blast of trumpet, returned with your saints and, and caught us up into the heavens with you, I wouldn't argue at all. I would be so glad to see you. But Lord, you know, your Father knows the exact perfect and right time in history when you'll return. And until then, you've left your church on earth with a task, with a mission. And so Lord, I pray that we would learn from the example we see here with the not-so-great king and his son who would be really good but not quite yet, and you haven't acted. Lord, would we follow you in all of these things and say, when is Jesus going to act here? What is God going to do? And recognize, Lord, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you, Jesus, and that you will establish governing authorities as you see fit. And may we trust you in that. And Lord, we ask these things for your glory, for the spread of your gospel throughout the entire world. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.